大家好，我是 Lydia， 欢迎来到国际聊天室。Hey everyone, I'm Lydia. You're listening to International Talk. 今天的来宾非常特别，他是一位从来不在网络上分享自己的任何事情的人哦，所以今天算是独家的访谈。很荣幸邀请到我的父亲，我的爸爸来跟大家分享他这一生学到的一些智慧，还有他如何在年轻的时候到世界各地工作，以及他如何和不同文化的人相处。Today I'm very excited to introduce a guest who has never released any information online about his life or experiences. So think of this as an exclusive interview from the one and only Mr. Muir, my father, also known as Papa Muir, amongst my friends. I'm so happy he was willing to talk to me today, so I could share with the world his many wisdoms from his travels and his experiences working with people from different cultures. So, without further ado, let's get started. So, I have a very special guest today. I'd like to welcome my father. Say it with a British accent. <laughs> my father to the podcast today. Welcome, Dad. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. So, tell everyone where are you from?、Um, well, originally I'm from England, a small city that's called Derby. sits in the almost in the the very middle of England.、Um, famous for two things. Used to be the home of British Rail and their engineering and development centre, and also the home of Rolls Royce aircraft engines, which was a Family tradition, if you like.、Uh, my father and several members of his family worked there, and I eventually started working there. I think actually many people don't know anything about Derby, especially nowadays, right? No, I mean it's still not very well known. I mean it's not like a Manchester or a Birmingham, but it's it, it's just existed there for a long time. It's a relatively quiet place, shall we say? Yeah, it's more countryside, more rural side of England, right? Yeah, it's it's in the Midlands. It's just south of、um, Yorkshire, for example,、um, where you've got a lot of the the Lake District and famous sort of countryside areas like that. Which other countries have you lived in? Oh my goodness,、uh, that's a rather long list. If I start at the beginning and try and work my way through it, born and bred in England, first moved to the east coast of the United States in Connecticut. Then I moved to the West Coast, lived in San Francisco. Then I spent quite a short amount of time、uh, living in Malaysia, then Singapore, then Hong Kong, back to Singapore, back to the UK, then the Netherlands, and now France. That's a lot of countries. Yes, I、uh, seem to have、uh, spent a lot of my time in a suitcase, or a, or at least most of my、uh, sort of personal stuff has. Spend a lot of time in、uh, in packing cases and cardboard boxes. I feel like that's probably also why you don't like flying now, right? Because you flew so much on a plane before. Yeah, I, I, it's a bit like a prison sentence. I, I figured I've done my time now, so、um, I don't see why I should、uh, volunteer, shall we say, for for much more punishment. <laughs> Most people find flying or traveling a a reward for you. It's a punishment. <laughs> No, I mean there there were times in my life where I spent more time flying than almost anything else. For example, when I lived in the states, I mean I travelled basically Monday to Saturday, flying all over the place. Work when I was working for Rolls Royce. When I worked in San Francisco, I would be two weeks in San Francisco, two weeks in Asia. And when I was out in Asia, I was travelling to various different countries all the time. I actually worked it out one day that. 
I was actually sitting in airplanes for about 120 hours a month. Whoa. And that was before I started working. <laughs> 120? Yep. That's a lot. Yeah. I can see why you don't like flying now. <laughs> we'll talk more about those travel experiences later. Um, but now you live in France. Why did you choose to move to France of all the countries you've been to? Why France? Why not? <laughs> what do you like about France? Well, I'd never been to France. Well, I'd, I'd been to France a couple of times, but just to Paris on business. Um, but a friend of mine who I met actually in Hong Kong, he moved to France. And then when I was living in the Netherlands, we got talking and uh, we actually used him to do some work for the company. And he said, why don't you come down and spend some time with us? You know, we've got a jeet, got a swimming pool. Um, you know, come and have a, have a little holiday and we can have a real proper catch up. So we started doing that and we came back several times and enjoyed the countryside here, uh, enjoyed the culture. And so decided that, um, yeah, we'd buy a house down here. I thought you were going to say because of the wine and the cheese. <laughs> well, that also has an influence on it. It's part of the culture that we liked. <laughs> but I think that's a good tip to everyone. Stay in touch with your friends because you never know. They might show you around a new country or a new city. So keep in touch with those international friends. Um, how many languages do you speak? Really only about half. <laughs> Which half? About half English. <laughs> but now you speak French. No, not very good. I wouldn't say that I can speak French. I mean, I can make myself understood. I can understand some things. But I've never been good at languages. Unlike my daughter, who is a bit of a genius with languages. Um, <laughs> since she'll probably change this interview into Chinese, Dutch or Portuguese afterwards. Um, well, I haven't spoken Portuguese in years. <laughs> but also all those, all that traveling, you didn't pick up any languages? No, because I, I worked in uh, aviation, because the language of aviation is English. Mm. I mean, even uh, pilots, for example, who, who live and work in Asia, um, will probably spend the majority of their time when they're training, for example, uh, it, working in English. So it's a, it's a universal language for aviation. So when you worked in those countries or when you went to Asia, did you have translators or did they all speak English? The only place we used translators was in China. I first went into China back in, oh, let me see, around 1989. And that was when the country was really just starting to open up. And at that point, there were some people who spoke English there. But many times for the formal meetings, um, we would have a translator. Sometimes we'd provide our own. Sometimes the Chinese would provide one. The, the Chinese translators actually were quite incredible, I have to say. Um, these were people who'd never left China, but spoke better English than me. Wow. It was incredibly impressive. Um, I mean, I remember talking to one or two of them, you know, when we were taking a break or something. And I would say, you know, where did you learn your English? And they'd say, the English school in Beijing. <laughs> it's like, you never spent time in England or the United States? No. Wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. See, it is possible. I'm always telling my students in Taiwan, they're always saying how, oh, they could never perfect their English. But it is possible, but it, you just need the right environment. So I guess that school, whatever that school was, was good enough to give them the environment. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how they did it. But I mean, these were relatively young people as well. I mean, you know, they weren't like 40, 50 years old. Most of them were sort of young people, I'd say, in their 20s. So, I mean, you know, they, they'd sort of come through normal school, university, and then gone into this translation school, or whatever you call it, a language school, I suppose, uh, and then basically graduated from there. 
So you mentioned aviation, um, but could you tell us a little bit more about what was your job before you retired? <laughs> before I retired or throughout my career? I guess throughout your career, but then in a summary. <laughs> okay, I started working at Rolls-Royce originally. Uh, an engineer, technical type things uh, to do with aircraft engines. Then later on, I moved on to the sales and marketing side on the aircraft engines. And that was basically working in the States. And so that gave me my sort of basic aviation knowledge of, you know, airlines and particularly engines, obviously how they work. But then I moved into the aircraft leasing business. And that is a totally different business, quite fascinating. If you look at a company that makes aircrafts or, or engines, you know, you've got a big company, could be 30, 40, even 100,000 employees. In the leasing business, you've got a very small number of people. Just to give you an example, um, the first company I joined employed about 80 people. About 50 of those were all kind of accounting type staff who were dealing with investors. And there was about 30 of us who did all of the marketing, all of the technical work, all of the contracts, the legal stuff. And we managed about 220 aircraft, probably around two or $3 billion worth of equipment. Wow. 30 people. No pressure then. <laughs> no pressure, but um, fantastic fun. Because in a company like that, you've got complete freedom. And the thing I always say is that, you know, you have to enjoy your work to be able to put your best into it. And when you've got the freedom to work like that, then you have the ability to make a difference. If you're one of 40,000 employees in Derby working for Rolls-Royce, you don't really make a difference. You, you work hard, you do lots of good things, but you don't really see any effect of that. Well, in a leasing company, you do. And later on in my career, when I joined another leasing company based in the Netherlands originally, I actually moved from the sales and marketing to the technical side. Totally different kind of work, semi-related to some of the work that I did uh, when I worked for Rolls-Royce. And that company went through a major change. And we refer to the company as a platform because it's like you take money in, you buy airplanes, you lease them out. It's a, it's a platform that sits in the middle. And how you manage those aircraft is the way that you make money. And the better you manage them, the more money you make. And one of the things that that company did was it completely revitalized itself, I suppose you would say. Um, it reinvented itself and we changed the way the platform worked to the point whereby it was by far the best in the industry. And I had external people who came to, um, to auditors at times who knew other companies and worked with them as well. And they all said, you are by far the best platform in the industry. And I like to think that, you know, I helped to make that difference. And that gives you a tremendous source of pride. And of course, it just gives you a tremendous incentive to to go on and do more and mm. work harder and work smarter. Yeah. I think what you were saying earlier about having a, a small <laughs> group of people who do everything, it helps because you're not, I think many companies nowadays, you have so many departments, right? So if you want to do something, let's say I work in marketing, I have to go through the accounting department, I have to go through the legal department, yep. and there's not much you can actually do because you're constantly relying on other people or you know everything's so split up but when you have a team like that you can really do a bit of everything i mean it's harder because you have to be able to yeah. do a bit of everything you have to be able to understand contracts you have to do sales it's it's harder but i think eventually it's more rewarding well that was where the u.s leasing company was so much fun because i was basically 
told, okay, we want you to look after Asia and uh, we've got no business there and we want you to go get business for us. But wouldn't you say how? Like, isn't that scary? <laughs> well, it's scary in a way, but it's also, um, it also ignites that sort of challenge within you where, you know, when somebody says, you'll never do that, it's impossible. And in your mind, you're going, <laughs> wait and see, I'll find a way to do it. And you go out and you do it. And it was just great fun. There was no budgets. We just, myself and one or two others, we went out there, we knocked on doors, we got to know people, and eventually we brought the business in. And by the end of about three or four years, whenever there was uh, some leasing business to be done, we were on the list of companies to be contacted. What happens if you make a big mistake? Then you've got a very red face and you've got to explain to the boss <laughs> what you did wrong and explain why it won't happen again. Maybe I'm fortunate. I only ever had one deal go wrong and that was not my fault. That was the uh, the new owners of the company. The company was bought by another company and I went out, I put the deal together with the board's approval and when they eventually signed and came back, the board simply said, we've changed our mind, we don't want to do it. Just like that, no reason. Yep. So that was your only big mistake or was... not even mistake, your only big loss, I should say. Yeah. That's pretty impressive then. Um, yeah, <laughs> but you know, Asia is different to Europe and the US. Asia is all about relationships. Yeah, it really is. We always used to say, you know, first you sell yourself, then your company, and then its products. And so when something like that goes wrong, I mean, I had to just get, get on a plane and go back out there and explain to people and say, I'm really sorry, this is what's happened. Because they knew me, because I was honest and genuine with them, they said, oh yeah, we understand, okay, yeah. That's a shame, this would have been a great deal to do. But that's the way things go sometimes. But yeah, it's important that you had that relationship first, otherwise they would it, have just thought this person's unreliable. Yeah, and what would have happened is that, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you went in there, you would never ever have done business with them again. Yeah. Within the aircraft leasing business, whether you're, you're working for the leasing companies or in the airlines dealing with leasing uh, of aircraft, you know, it's a relatively small population. You know, there's tens of thousands of leased aircraft, but there's probably only a couple of thousand people involved in that. Mm, it's a small industry. Yeah. And you, you, you basically all know each other, you know, and, and sometimes we go out of our way to make life difficult for our competitors. And sometimes they do the same to us, <laughs> you know, c'est la vie. Yeah. Okay, so the last question of the first part, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do in your free time? Not a lot. <laughs> Don't really have much at the moment. I've got, I've been working on renovating the house in France and uh, kind of run out of steam on that for a bit, but I'll get back onto it for a while. Side note, my dad has renovated every single house that we've lived in. I'm pretty sure, right? Yeah, pretty much so. Even the ones we rented, we changed them a little bit. You want to be unique, you want to be individual. That's the, that's the nature of things. No, I mean, in I, I decided I would probably do a lot of things, but um, my health has not been that good over the past uh, 9 to 12 months, so I'm kind of taking it easy and cruising at the moment, hoping to sell this house and maybe start on a new one. <laughs> Always another house. And you also watch Formula One. That's a hobby. I do occasionally watch it most weekends. Yes. Nothing else? No, not really. It's been a very quiet life here. It's also a very difficult adjustment to make. When you're so involved in your work and you throw yourself into it, it's very difficult to just stop. Mm, I can't um, imagine it. You know, I mean, when, when you're used to working, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, sometimes six days a week, and all of a sudden it's like, you've got nothing. 
That's tough. Yeah. It's not easy to deal with. But I mean, I've got I've got one or two little ideas I might play around with. I've had a nice guitar for many, many years now. It's actually time oh, yeah. I started picking it up and started working with it. That's true. Yeah, you, t- you started taking guitar lessons, right? Well, I've got some online stuff yeah. that I've been uh, looking at and thinking about and going, yeah, soon, soon. <laughs> You'll get to it. I, I can actually see the guitar from here. <laughs>首先我请我爸分享他来自哪里接着我问他他住过几个国家他说他没有算过但这个答案其实蛮长的他说他要来算算看小时候他在英国长大长大后搬到美国的东边然后后来到美国的西边接着在马来西亚住一段时间然后新加坡香港又回了新加坡然后回
我说感觉压力很大哎、欸，他说他觉得这个反而非常好玩，因为这种公司你有很多的弹性跟自由去完成你的工作，而当你非常热爱你的工作的时候，再加上有这么多资源让你去完成，你的影响力就很大。当你有影响力，你就真的可以做出一些改变，而当这些改变成功的时候，也帮助公司，你一定会有很骄傲的感觉，而且会更有动力想要去做得更好，做得更多。最后我问他，现在退休了，他自己的时间比较多，他喜欢做些什么事情？他说他没有很多兴趣，不过目前还在整修法国的房子。我跟听众们补充一下，我们住过的每一个房子，我爸都有整修和重新装潢过，而且我们住过很多间不同的房子。我跟我爸也很喜欢看赛车 F1， 从小假日就是陪他一起看赛车。现在去找他也是一起看赛车。他说，其实他还在适应退休生活，毕竟他以前工作的时间很长也很多。现在突然没有工作，其实会很不习惯。但是慢慢的，他在找出一些兴趣。他一直有一把吉他，但是还没有坐下来认真开始学。现在大家比较了解我爸的背景和人生故事，让我们来听听他的一些分享。Now let's continue with part two of the interview. So now that everyone knows a little bit more about your background and what you've been doing and where you've been, let's dive deeper into some of the stories that you have to tell. So you mentioned, of course, that you spent most of your young life, I would say, in England. What was it like there? Because I feel like England has changed a lot over the years. How would you describe England when you were growing up? Wow, totally different to what it is now. I mean, bearing in mind that that you know I was brought up and and lived in the Midlands, so it's not like I was living in London, which is obviously far more international. But England was where I lived was very much a kind of a stereotype, I, I suppose you would <coughs> excuse me call it for life, you know, in a semi-rural area. The interesting thing is is that when I came back to the UK,、um, where are we? I left in eighty six. I came back in ninety seven. It had changed enormously. In fact, what the thing that I really noticed the most was that it had become much more American. And by that, there were two things that really kind of struck me. One was the folk. Everybody's focus on money. Got to make money. Got to make money. Rather than having a happy life. And the other element was this sort of、um, almost, I guess you would call it an insular approach. Everybody just cared for themselves. It didn't have that community vibe, or you know. Yeah, community. Yeah, community yeah. vibe. That that's the you know best way to describe it. And people are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When when I when I first came back to England in ninety seven, you know, after a few months, it's like I suddenly kind of sat down and thought, "This is not my home. This this doesn't feel like home." It's not the country that I left,、mm. and that was why when you know later on an opportunity came to to move to the Netherlands, I just said, okay, we're on the move again. Why not?、Mm. But I think also probably, I mean, England definitely changed, but probably you changed as well because you know you when you left England, you've never you've probably never been abroad or not properly, I guess. Very little. I mean, I mean, I'd made a few trips, three or four trips out to Southeast Asia, one or two trips into Europe, two or three trips to the U.S., and then I found myself, you know, working still for Rolls Royce, but based in the U.S. in Connecticut. And yeah, it was different. Because I feel like probably you know you'd seen so much of the world, and you know, being international changes you. So going back, I mean, there's a saying: you get reverse culture shock when you go back to the place where you started from. Is that you? 
don't recognize it anymore but also hmm. partly i mean like i said england has changed as well but probably also you had changed too so it was no longer like you said it was no longer home anymore yeah exactly yes having exposure to all these different countries is interesting and you know you see good things and you see bad things some things you're comfortable with some things you're very uncomfortable with but you know that's just different places they're different how old were you when you moved to the u.s i was 30 years old so you'd never lived abroad before 30. Mm -hmm. when you moved to the u.s how did you feel? Were you excited? Were you scared? Oh, excited. You weren't scared at all to leave this home that you'd known the whole past 30 years? And... No, because I was still working for Rolls-Royce. And of course, Rolls-Royce had people to help you. Um, they had this program whereby they'd take people from, from the UK and they'd put them in their US office for two or three years at a time and then bring you back. So the you plan know, was to come back to England. That was Rolls-Royce's plan, yeah. <laughs> Not yours. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, they weren't too happy when they heard my plan to continue in the US. Because you you have this umbrella of a company there. And when you get out there, you know, you're going to be talking to the person you're replacing. So they're going to explain a lot of different things to you. I mean, it's, it, it's like arriving in a new country, but you've got a guide. And so it's very easy. I mean, I actually took over the rental of the apartment that the guy before me had because <laughs> I looked at, it, at the place he'd got and I said that looks fine for me <laughs> yeah why not let's do that yeah I'll take it over when you go I don't know what you knew about America then or how familiar you were with it but were you not worried about it being a very different culture or uh, I don't know things that you heard about America well no at that time everybody looked up to America I mean not now they look down on it it's quite the opposite <laughs> I'm afraid <clears throat> but, you know, it was just like, wow, it's great. I'm going to the States. It was a, a good thing, a positive step. It was a positive step. I mean, you know, everybody within the company said, oh, if they're sending you to the States, to the U.S. office for two or three years, you know, you must be a high flyer. Mm. You know, it was considered a, a reward for good work. Yeah. And mm. it, it sort of signified that, yeah, you've got a good future in the organization, which was great. I mean, it was fun. So, I mean, when you've got all of that, you're moving to a, a new country, but it's a very easy move. I mean, they speak English. Well, sort of. <laughs> Two countries separated by a common language um, is very true. It's easy for an English person to live in the US. Mm. I mean, yes, you've got lots of differences in how things work and all this kind of stuff. But in reality, because you know the language, it's very, very easy. Mm. At that time, you know, English people were looked on by Americans as, you know, really nice people oh gosh yeah i got they to see an are. english guy you know <laughs> um so you know you were very welcome there you yeah. know maybe if you were from some other countries then there might have been a bit more um you know racism or stuff in it but you know <laughs> you know white english i mean yeah you're you're the easiest person to fit in there right um, there weren't so many challenges that's why i always tell you is that you know keep your english accent I'm trying. I'm trying. It's hard. <laughs> you know, when, when you're in sales and marketing and you have an English accent, you can work your way into a secretary's office much, much easier than if you've got a Texas draw. Trust me, How it works. How come you works. never picked up the American accent? I tried very hard not to. Oh, it, was a, it was a conscious thing that you yeah. had to think about. Yeah. Because it's very easy to copy, right? The American oh, yeah. accent is yeah. very easy to pick up. Yeah, well, I, I guess I changed from my Derbyshire English to a more international English, but then I intended, you know, very deliberately to keep that. What's a Derbyshire English? 
Uh, well, you know. Uh, <laughs> can you still do it? <laughs> I don't think I can. I can't. I can't it, it's so that. long ago, I mean, that uh, even early in the days when I worked for Rolls-Royce and I went to see a, I went to see a customer, I think it was in Turkey, you know, and I'm standing in this big, like, theatre place and doing a presentation, you know, and I started talking about a thing on the engine that we all called the dog bone because it was a piece of plastic and it looked basically like your cartoon dog bone. The guy who was the marketing lead there sort of whispered to one side, Paul, they don't know what a dog bone is. <laughs> and, you know, it was like a, it was like a hammer on the head, <laughs> you know, and it's like, darn it, come on, you've got to change. Yeah, you've got to be international. You know, if, if you can't explain the subject that you're talking about in plain English, it was the first time that I realized that I'm talking to an audience whose first language is not English. Yeah. It's a second, sometimes even a third language. Mm. And so that really hit me. And it's like, it's not just standing up there and talking about what you know, but it's the way that you explain it that's important. You have to connect with your audience. Really. Yeah. And that means don't confuse them with some weird English colloquialism, <laughs> you know, that might make perfectly sense inside your company but makes no sense at all to some guy sitting there thinking i came here to learn about engines and he's talking about dogs <laughs> but i mean that's just that's one of the lessons that you learn when you start going out and about and you do make mistakes and things but yeah that's life it's all part of learning speaking of going out and about so because of your your work and your jobs you visited so many countries have you ever counted how many countries you visited no, I don't think I have. Do you think it's over 50? <laughs> oh my goodness, probably 30 to 50, I don't know, something like that. I feel like it must be a lot. Do you have a favorite country that you like to visit? Not necessarily to live, but just to visit. No, because it's you, you, you've got different phases in your life. You know, if you'd have asked me when I was 35, what's my favorite country to, to be in? Uh, I'd have said maybe the States or something like that. Uh, if you asked me when I was 45, when I was married and had children, I'd have probably said Singapore. Now I think I'd probably say France. But <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it all depends on what you want. Mm. You know, the classic example is Singapore. Um, we moved there when you were about, uh, I think, just over a year old or something like that. If you're a family um, with young children, you know, you want to live in a safe, clean environment. And Singapore was perfect for that. You know, at the time, it was the perfect fit. But then as you get older and you want to do more things and you then what was good before, because it was very crime free, um, suddenly it starts to feel a bit more oppressive and mm. you're, you're less comfortable with it. Singapore is known for their very strict laws and rules. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I don't hold that against them. I mean, they're, they're, they're a classic example, if you like. If they didn't have a really strong culture of obeying the rules, you've got a mixture of three totally different cultures in Singapore. You've got the local Chinese, you've got the Malaysians, and you've got the Indians. Unless they all obeyed those rules, you could end up with a country that, that is just completely falling apart, kind of like racist uh, violence, you mm. know. And the thing about Singapore is that, you know, they've always been extremely strict rules and stuff. But, you know, it works for them. Mm. And if people are happy with that, people there have a good life. They live in a nice place. Mm -hmm. They're well looked after. Mm -hmm. And you pay for that because you have to obey the rules. Yeah. 
that's fine. You know, there's nothing secret about it. Yeah. It's like, you know, anybody can go to Singapore, yeah. very liberal immigration policy. But if you go there and you live there, you follow their rules. Yeah. That's fair. Okay. I can live with that. You know, if you don't like it, what do you leave? Yeah, that's true. It's very open, very fair. Yeah. Is there a place that you didn't like visiting or that you would never want to go back to? <laughs> Ooh, should I name names? Um, <laughs> I mean, it could be a personal thing too, you know. I mean, some people don't like big cities. Some people don't like very rural areas. So it could be a personal Yeah, thing. but I mean, I spent most of my life visiting the major cities because that's where the airlines are based. China was very difficult. At the time, they'd only just opened up. You couldn't be, and, and because, you know, I didn't speak any of the language, you couldn't really kind of wander around and chat with people. Mm. Um, you know, if I was in Singapore or Indonesia or whatever, you know, you could take a walk around and you'd find somebody who would speak some English and, you know, whether it's in a little bar or cafe or restaurant or sometimes just in the street, you know, a little <laughs> street vendor selling something. You go and yeah. have a look at it and you say, you make that? Yeah, yeah I made that. Wow, how do you make that? You know, it's interesting. <laughs> it was great. But in China, you couldn't do that. Yeah. You know, it was only a few years before I started going there. There was a guy from Rolls Royce went there and he had blonde hair. And the Chinese had never seen blonde yeah. hair. If he walked outside the office, Chinese people would come up and, and touch his hair touch to his see hair, if it was yeah. real. Never yeah. seen it before. So, I mean, you know, between yourself and the people, there was this massive barrier. Yeah. Um. You know, and there was lots of uh, national security and stuff, you know, looking at what you were doing or anything. So in, in a way, you were perfectly safe because you were always followed by some security <laughs> guy. You know, nobody would dream of attacking you because, you know, the minute they touch you, there would be 10 security guys or something. Yeah. But it, it did mean that you couldn't really kind of get to know some local people and just, you know, get the feel of the country. Yeah, you can't really integrate or... Blend yeah. in. You know, one of the things I always liked to do when I started going to a country was to try and get to know people there. Because you learn a lot from the way that they talk about stuff. You know, not necessarily business, but life in general and things and what's happening and so on. And that means that when you go and talk to your business friends, you can talk about some of the local things as well. Or you can mm -hmm. say, you know, I met somebody the other day and they said this and I, I don't understand that. What's it all about, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and they'd happily explain it creates conversation yeah and it also shows that you're you're taking an interest in them you know mm. the other thing of course was to learn a few local customs like in um in malaysia you never pointed because if you pointed at something it was rude you know with a with a forefinger oh not um, even food or something no you would always sort of just you'd make almost like a fist and with your thumb straight out you'd sort of point in that way oh. uh, well, and that was acceptable that? talk to people so is that how you, because I was going to ask, you know, going to all these different countries, you don't know the customs, you don't know the traditions, how do you learn all that? It's all just from talking to locals? Yeah, you get there and you talk to people and you see what people do. Who do you talk to though? Anybody. <laughs> you, you talk to people, you know, you say, um, okay, let's suppose I'm, I'm in Malaysia and I'm talking to the guy that I deal with in the airline and I say, by the way, I'm going to Indonesia next week. Um, any tips you can give me so I don't, you know, make a complete fool of myself? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. 
Um, same as here, you know, don't don't kneel down on your knees. You must never do that because they're Muslim like us. You know, don't point, uh, don't do this, and never talk about that or that because, you know, they're very sensitive to that. You know, okay, great, thank you. You know, so appreciate you just it. ask people. He just ask people. He mm. I'm going now, I don't want to make a fool of myself. Mm. <laughs> and they understand perfectly what you mean. Yeah. It, it shows that you care. It makes the other, per for the other person, it's easier to work with you. That's true. Because you're being more open, right? So you're, yeah. You're telling and, them. You know, often if I met somebody for the first time in, uh, first time in that country, I'd say, look, you know, I'm not familiar with the local traditions and things. So, you know, if I do something that is not nice, please tell me, you know, do not be afraid to say, Paul, you shouldn't do that. I want to learn. I want to know. Mm. And people always like that. Just put it out in the open in the beginning. and just, yeah, yeah, you know. If I make a mistake, you know, excuse me, I'm a foreigner. I don't understand these things, mm -hmm. but please explain them to me. Yeah. And it's it's lovely. It's nice that way. Yeah, I think that's a really, because it gives you, especially in Asia where they're a lot less direct, it gives them the opportunity to tell yeah. you, actually, you shouldn't say that here or, because normally they'd probably just, you know, in their head, they'll be thinking this foreigner doesn't know what he's doing and, you know, blah, 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 but then they won't tell you. Yeah. And then suddenly they don't contact you and you don't know why. Yeah, um, exactly. So this gives them the chance to say, okay, actually, you know what you said just now, we, we don't really talk about that or you shouldn't do that. And Yeah, exactly. And then you learn. And they feel more open with you then because they know that they can tell you something and you won't be offended. Yeah. I want to make life easy for them and do that by making life easy for me. So we don't, you know, if he, if he introduces me to his boss, you know, I don't walk up and shake hands with the wrong hand or something, you yeah. know. <laughs> uh, and, you know, absolutely, you know, abhorrent sort of, Oh my God, what's he doing? No. Are there any customs or things like that that you heard of that you were really shocked about or that you thought, wow, if no one told me that, I would have been in big trouble? Or Well, the biggest one, um, and it's something that, that in the West we do quite unconsciously, is you kneel down. You're in the airport. You know, you're talking with somebody. They're sitting in a chair and you go next to them. You know, you put your laptop on, the, on their knee sort of thing, you know, explaining something and you kneel down on the floor. Oh. You only put your knees down when you're in the mosque. But if you squat, it's okay. If you squat, it's okay. As long as okay. the knees don't touch. Yeah, as long as the knees oh. aren't on the ground. But, you know, something like that. Yeah. Because I've seen people in the airport doing that, you know. And I've seen the local people going... Shaking their heads. Shaking their heads, <laughs> looking very darkly at them, you know, yeah. going, foreigners, we don't like them. I don't think even I knew that, actually. I mean, we, I haven't visited many Muslim. You haven't visited many Muslim countries. Yeah, yeah. But it's um, good to know because, yeah, you don't want to be um, disrespectful unintentionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd often see tourists in Malaysia. They're going around and they're pointing their finger all over the place. And it's like, you know, it, sometimes when I see people, I'd say, excuse me, but, you know, you really shouldn't do that here. Mm. Why? Well, because it's rude. You know, in this country, it's very rude, especially if you point at somebody. Mm. it's very rude indeed you point with your hand just you know like a sort of a loose fist using the thumb but not sticking out but just to, to indicate I said you know go and ask a local for directions and see how they point yeah and that will tell you yeah that's true all right I'm going to ask you the last question which I ask all of my guests which is if you had one message or maybe let's say life advice that you'd want to share with my audience <laughs> What would it be? Your biggest life lesson from your many, many experiences. Wow, that's difficult. <laughs> Never have children? No. <laughs> you only had one. <laughs> yeah, but we only ever talk about having one too many, not two too many. I mean, <laughs> no, 
No, oh, oh gosh, I mean, there's so much stuff. Um, uh, maybe the best one is no regrets. Y you go through life, sometimes you get things right, sometimes you get things wrong. But, you know, every time you have an issue, you think about it, you get as much information as you can about whatever the situation is, and then you make a decision. And later on, you may look back at it and say, oh, my God, that was such a stupid thing to do. But no regrets, because if you were in the same situation again with what you know, you'd make the same decision again. So don't have regrets. It's just, that's life. It, it, you know, it turns left, it turns right, it goes straight ahead, and sometimes it goes in reverse. But you know, that's what makes life fun. Perfect. I think that was, that's very good advice. Don't have regrets. Because, yeah, especially because you can't change the past, right? So. Yep. You can't go back and change things. It's impossible. When you were faced with a situation, you didn't know any more than what you did. So, you know, you didn't say, well, you know, I should do this, but I'm going to do this instead. You didn't make a deliberate mistake. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, no one makes mistakes intentionally, right? So. Yeah. So it's like, well, I knew this, I knew that, and I thought that, so that was the best thing. It was completely and utterly wrong and stupid idea, but okay, I'll learn. <laughs> I like that, yeah. I think that's very good advice. Well, thank you so much for sharing your stories today. Even I learned something about you, some new things about you that I didn't know before, and I've known you literally my whole life. So, yeah, thank you very much. That was really interesting. Wow, thank you. That's bad <laughs> news. I've given some secrets away. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. 他说因为他住的地方比较乡下我跟他说我觉得虽然英国也改变了很多他说三十岁而且美国人对英国人的看法就是英国人都很善良、很绅士
。我跟他说，我很努力的想要找回我的英式腔调，可是我觉得很困难。我问他，他在美国住那么久，怎么没有被美国人影响，变成美式腔调呢？他说他是刻意很努力去维持他的英国腔，不过他还是有稍微调整过他的腔调，因为他以前是 Darby English， 就是北边的腔调，还有一些可能比较当地的用语。他说有一次他去土耳其去找客户，他发现他用的词当地人听不懂。虽然他们会英文，可是他用的词太 local， 所以他后来有学会调整自己的沟通方法，变得比较国际化。也是这个经验让他学到，演讲不只是要很了解内容，也要跟观众有连接，去了解你的听众们。我爸因为工作的关系去过很多国家，我问他有没有数过他到底去过几个国家。他说没有，不过应该在三十或五十之间。接着我问他有没有特别喜欢哪个国家，他说这个很难回答，因为人生不同阶段你会想要的不一样。像年轻的时候，他可能会回答美国；四十几岁结婚生小孩之后，他可能会说新加坡；现在的他会说法国。重点是看你当下想要什么。例如住在新加坡的时候，我才一岁。我爸说，那时候他们想要找一个安全、空气好、适合养小孩的地方，所以新加坡就是他们理想中的环境。我问他，那有没有哪个国家是他再也不想去或是不喜欢的？他说这个问题很难回答。不过如果一定要选一个国家，他说当时的中国才刚开放外国人入境，所以那个时候以外国人的身份，其实很难融入当地的生活，也很难跟当地人沟通。我爸说，他以前去到任何一个国家，不管是印尼、马来西亚等等，他都会很喜欢跟当地人聊天，比如说在咖啡厅啊、酒吧啊，或是连翻探的的人，他都可以跟当地人聊天。但是在中国，这件事情很困难，所以他觉得很可惜。他说那时候有个同事是金发，他去到中国的时候还没有什么外国人去，所以中国人看到他的金发很惊讶。他只要一离开饭店，就有人过去摸他的头发，所以他就会觉得很困扰，都不太愿意出门。我爸说，那个时候外国人跟当地人的距离很遥远，所以对他来说，不像去其他国家一样这么有趣。因为他那时候去每个国家就是为了要做生意，所以当他跟当地人聊天的时候，他可以学到当地文化的一些事情，也可以找到一些和客户聊天的话题。而且他发现，如果你对他们的国家和文化好奇，他们反而会很开心，也会很乐意的跟你解释或者分享。除了这个，他可以更了解一个文化，同时也可以跟客户有一个真诚的连接。讲到这个，我问我爸爸，为什么他要在这么多不同国家做生意？会不会遇到一些文化差异的误会或是摩擦？他说，这就是为什么跟当地人聊天啊。例如他在马来西亚学到的就是。不管怎么样，都不可以用食指指任何东西。这个行为非常没有礼貌，就算是指食物或是东西，都不能用食指。反而他们会有点像是做个拳头，用大拇指稍微指，但是也不能很直接的指。这种事情只有当地人会知道。我问他说：“那他都跟谁聊天？”他说：“任何人都可以啊。像他如果在马来西亚，他可能就会跟那边的客户说。”我下一站要去印尼，有没有什么建议可以给我，或是让我在那边不要犯错？然后他们可能就会说，当然可以啊，然后就会告诉我爸说那边不能跪在地上，因为他们是回教，不要提到某个话题等等。他说直接问是最好的方式，因为问代表你在乎别人的感受，而且也尊重他们的文化，也可以给另一方一个机会告诉你，特别是在亚洲的国家。
。如果你今天做了让他们不开心的事情，他们不一定会告诉你。可是今天，如果你直接跟他们说“不好意思，因为我不了解你们的文化，如果我做出什么让你们觉得不舒服或不开心的事情，请你一定要告诉我，因为也许我只是不知道。”如果你这样讲的话，他们就会觉得“哦，他没有恶意”，然后就会很愿意教导你。最后，我问我爸爸。如果他可以跟听众们分享一段话，他会想说什么？他说：“不要后悔任何事情，也不要有遗憾。”他说：“人生只是充满着选择，有时候你会选对，有时候你会选错。当你回想以前做过的选择，也许你会觉得当时做错选择，可是如果回到同一个时候以及当时的你，你一定会做出同样的选择啊，因为那个就是你在当下觉得最适合你的选项。所以不要后悔任何的决定。”没有人会刻意犯错，所以你只要从中学习就够了。我觉得这段话说得非常好，所以大家可以去记得，不要去后悔你做过的决定，因为那个就是当时你最好的选择。真的很感谢我爸今天愿意跟我聊这么多，连我他的女儿都学到了很多新的事情，也对他更了解了。如果你也喜欢今天的访谈，还有我们的节目，请记得帮我们打五颗星。也可以在 IG 帮我们分享，也记得要 tag 我，让我看见。在 IG 可以搜寻 International Talk Podcast， 因为有你们的回馈和分享，让我更有动力继续制作访谈。If you also enjoyed this interview and the podcast in general, it would mean so much to me if you could give us a five star rating and follow me on social media, International Talk underscore Podcast. Leave me a comment, tag me, let me know what you think, let me know if you have any interesting stories to tell. Anything would be great to hear. Your comments and feedback help me to stay motivated, so please don't be shy. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful week. I'll see you next time. 我们下次见喽。